This is Liberal Talk on COVID-19 vaccination and children. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at UnityPoint Health, St. Luke's Hospital. Uh, last Tuesday, the FDA amended Pfizer's emergency use authorization to include children ages 5 to 11. Uh, and joining me today is to discuss uh, this uh, decision, as well as his perspective on uh, COVID vaccines and pediatrics, is Dr. William Ching, pediatric hospitalist with St. Luke's. Dr. Ching, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Arnold. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, to start off, just kind of give me your perspective on the decision that was made to expand this to five and 11-year-olds. I think that the decision to expand the emergency authorization to include children that are five to 11 is a very important next step and our ability to control um, the, the, the disease burden, which basically means how much um, COVID affects our population in general. It does this through broadening the, the population that can be protected against severe COVID, and also from a much broader perspective, um, can reduce the number of children who get sick with COVID and days out of school, days out of work for caregivers, and all of that that um, that that is a that is a um, that spreads out from each case that we see. Yeah, I think I think you bring up a good point there, as with other, particularly chickenpox, varicella, that the opportunity to receive the vaccine is not necessarily the sequela of the disease, but the logistics of being off school. You know, I, I mean, I think that's a real consideration when you when you look at these. Um, I just, I mean, what's your thoughts on, you know, it's one thing for adults to take something that's on emergency use authorization. It's just, it's a, just, I hesitate with children um, because they're children. And what's your thoughts on the, the, the safety and the efficacy data uh, on this particular, can we extrapolate what happens to adults to children? So this is something that um, has, been debated and has been studied at length because precisely as you say, our children are among our most important um, members of our families and and we need to do everything we can to safeguard um, their health as much as possible. The ethical concerns about any kind of medication or intervention um, centers around doing no harm. And, and this is a balance between assessing uh, the benefit to the child, the benefit to the population versus potential risks that um, an intervention can pose. Nothing is 100%. So far, the safety data has been very positive, um, particularly in children. There have been several um, sequelae or possible side effects that have been associated um, with administration of the vaccine. However, they are very uncommon and very mild, and we tend to see them in older children. One of these is myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. And when we see that in our teenagers, um, that has raised concerns for this. However, longer term surveillance has shown that if it comes up, children recover from it, and, and there's no detectable long-term um, effect to it. I will say that this is in contrast to actually getting COVID, where myocarditis is far more prevalent in teenagers and adults who get COVID and is potentially far more severe 
and can and in certain cases, unfortunately, has been shown to have long term effects. Do you know when typically when a vaccine is studied, about how many children do they enroll in those studies and about how long do those studies go? Do you have any idea? So the, so there are different stages of this. It is fortunate that in in recent years, um, there is a requirement that newer medications are studied in children. In the past, we would just they would just be studied in adults. And then based on a paradigm of, well, kids are just small people, they would just take the data for adults and say, if it's good for adults, it's good for kids. Fortunately, Dr. O'Connor loves it when I say that, by the way, that kids I'm are sorry. just people. Dr. O'Connor loves it when I say kids are just small people. They're small, they're cute, much cuter. Yeah. Sorry um, to interrupt. So, so the so, as one can imagine, uh, generating, setting up a study that involves children, is going to be a lot harder, and it's going to involve smaller numbers of kids, um, because there are large, there are many many layers that are, that are at the institutional level, at the governmental level, um, at the company level, that are all set up to protect children, and to protect those who participate in these studies and to make sure that the caregivers um, who bravely say let's study this have the information they need to make an informed decision to enroll their children in these studies for the data that were submitted for this authorization there are over 3,000, and the surveillance for the for that population is ongoing so the if i'm hearing you correctly the data that was presented, uh, the myocarditis was rare to absent? As far as I know, there were zero cases of myocarditis okay. in right. the study population. Well, that's reassuring because we know it's kind of the adolescent male that gets it. But you're right, studies in children are just as complicated as studies in pregnancy. I mean, what pregnant woman is going to participate in a study to see if a certain medication causes harm to her baby. I mean, that's just not going to happen, you know, and that's, that's why that's, uh, and that is, you know, that's a no brainer. Um, Unfortunately, we've have, we have observational data looking at the effects or lack of effect um, or lack of association of administration of the vaccine in terms of pregnancy outcomes. Um, today, yeah, in that particular, yes, it, uh, in, you know, highly in very, very large um, international studies there is no change in the rate of miscarriage. There's no rate in the change um, in, of number of pregnancies that go to term between um, folks who, who received the vaccine and folks who didn't. So that's been very, very reassuring. Um, however, we do know that um, folks who get COVID when pregnant are at a vastly increased risk of prematurity, um, admission to the NICU, morbidity and mortality for um, for the mom. And that's something that should certainly be um, thought about. And it's the grounds for a very strong recommendation from every um, um, professional society that um, treats uh, pregnant women and babies to receive vaccine. Yeah, um, but I also on the same thought I, I i understand the trepidation a, a pregnant woman would have to try something new completely get it i mean totally get it parents are obviously going to be a little hesitant to receive this because of the unknown long-term effects but 
you know, I think we can say with some confidence, I'd like your opinion on it, that we know that the COVID vaccines don't have some sort of overwhelming, really common sort of side effect that's disabling because we've given over, you know, X billion of doses and we're just not seeing that. And that's that's very reassuring. The yeah. uh, other thing that comes with it is that to date, no vaccine has been associated with long-term side effects more than about three to four weeks out. Um, and this is especially relevant to the mRNA vaccines where the mRNA is is destroyed by the body within hours of administration. So, I mean, it, MR, mRNA is one of the most targeted for destruction molecules in the body. And that is a component of its safety, is that wherever the body can find any more of this RNA, it's it will be destroyed. And that is um, a very important thing that improves the safety of this vaccine. Do you think that, is there certain children, um, I mean, is it just like adults? I'm sure this is correct, but that we should consider vaccination rather strongly because of a chronic medical condition? Yes, there are a number of children um, that, that would fall into that category specifically. Um, thinking about those who would be at increased risk either for cardiac, respiratory, or immune issues. So those that we currently recommend receive the flu vaccine would be children that we would recommend um, receive the COVID vaccine due to their higher risk of respiratory issues or cardiac issues. Immunocompromised children, children with cancer, children um, who have received um, stem cell transplants, children who are receiving immunosuppressive therapies such as those with rheumatologic disorders. These are all um, candidates um, for the COVID vaccine that I would push hard um, to protect them from it. Another group would be children who are um, contacts with people who are at higher risk of COVID morbidity, namely um, those with close contacts that are immunocompromised, those who have um, lung disease or heart disease. This way, this uh, protects the um, the, the close contact from um, spread from the child um, to that individual or individuals. So these would all be children that I think would be much more uh, for which the vaccine would provide a much uh, stronger uh, indication. We'll continue discussing COVID-19 vaccine for children in just one minute. But first, I want to tell listeners about a new segment on the podcast, The Mailbag. Do you have a question about COVID-19, the latest medical technologies or procedures, services provided at UnityPoint Health, Cedar Rapids, or other medical topics? You can submit uh, your questions to me at unitypoint.org backslash mailbag, and they may be answered on a future podcast. Please note the mailbag is not an alternative to medical uh, appointment or medical care under a physician. Any questions about personal symptoms or conditions need to be directed to your primary care provider or an urgent care. And as always, in the case of an emergency, uh, call 91 or go to your nearest emergency department. Once again, you can submit your questions to me at unipoint.org backslash mailbag. That's unipoint.org backslash mailbag, M-A-I-L-B-A-G. I look forward to hearing from our amazing listeners. Dr. Ching, back to the vaccine. Do you think, do you think that one-third dose is going to convey less immunity or have less of an immune response? So it's 
this comes back to the question of are children little little adults? And it's and this is this has been one of the reasons why the emergency authorization has taken so long. It's looking at experimental data in vitro and in vivo to see what um, what dose regimen would work would basically walk that fine line between generating a good immune response while minimizing side effects. So that's the reason that the one third dose um, was arrived at as as something that um, that that balances well the an, an effective immune response versus uh, versus increasing the possibility of side effects. The second thing is that the that's one reason this is a two dose regimen that is spaced apart so that it gives the body time to be primed so that the second dose um, has a much better chance of generating uh, a good immune response. Yeah, we, we talked on previous podcasts that, uh, you know, one immunologist, the body has to learn how to make the antibody and then also remember how to make the antibody, you know, and that's that's why the, the regimen uh, goes on like that. On our last podcast, we had uh, in the mailbag, we had a mom ask about uh, her child uh, if they're 11 when they start the series and, and turn 12 during the series. And we did answer that question confidently that they just received the dose of that day, the, the, the age they are at that day. But another one came up and I really didn't know the answer. And maybe it's a benign answer. But what's so special about age 12? Why did they when, why did they stop at 12? So 12 is a is a is an it's a category. There's nothing magical that appears between 11 days, 364 and a quarter and 12. Um, it's it's pretty much how the study was conducted. And that's how and that's how that consistency in categorizing children who receive the vaccine and are and are checked for effects and things like that to make that analysis much more reliable. That's that's essentially the reason for that. Well, as a father with two daughters, I can say confidently that there is a difference between 364 days of being 15 and then turning 16 that the attitude does change overnight. So that I can say with confidence. One last question, Dr. Ching. Why did you choose to be a pediatric hospitalist? Take us through your your story. So one of the questions was what kind of uh, medicine to go into, and sometimes folks were uh, would ask the question: Do you want to be a surgeon, or do you want to treat people in a uh, on a on a at a, med- at a medical level? Uh, one thing people here don't know is that I started life doing research in pediatric neurosurgery in uh, spinal cord regeneration, and that was the first part of my career. And one thing that we looked at was. Uh, was how do spinal how can we find ways to help the spinal cord regenerate? And in looking at that, what model can we use? And that would be looking at the developing nervous system. And the study of pediatrics is the study of change and the study of how do we go from small amount of something to something that is way more organized and way more complex later. And how do we study that? And along the way, kids are great. And they certainly my, are. And you know, my my son is 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 my light. And uh, even at four o'clock in the morning. So you have one. You have one child. 
one child. And how old is he? He is 18 months. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, a lot in store for you, my friend. Yep. So, mine, are, mine are 17 and 20. So, so, that's, so that's the road to pediatrics. Um, when I decided that um, I would be able to do more um, and uh, from that way, from, as far as hospital medicine, it's, it's about solving complex problems and creating a model or an order out of what seems to be chaos, finding out what, what can we, what, how can we intervene to bring this child back to wellness? Um, and that's rewarding and, because at the end of the day, um, most of our kids, fortunately, we get to send home. And a kid who was miserably sick um, a couple of days ago, smiling, that's um, that's that's why we do this and the ability to spend time with them um, while they're in the hospital and to get to know the families um, is 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 a treasure and and i'm every day i'm grateful to the families for allowing me to be a part of their lives for that short period of time well we're we're certainly glad you're here you do a great job and that was why we asked you to be on the podcast today Dr. Ching, thank you so much for joining me. This is great information. Once again, this is Dr. William Ching, pediatric hospitalist with St. Luke's. If you're interested in having your 5 to 11-year-old vaccinated COVID-19, I suggest that you, uh, strongly suggest you discuss that with your pediatrician or primary care provider. For more information on all things COVID, visit unitypoint.org. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers, about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.